Welcome back to AQ's Blog and Grill, a podcast dedicated to bringing you stories of innovation and insights in the branding and marketing space. Sprinkle in a dash of entrepreneurship and startup life, and you've got food for thought. Whether you want to define your new startup brand, discover how to turn your hobby into a successful business, or hone your content creation skills, you're sure to leave each week with a full stomach or mind. Now here's your host, Alan Quarry. AQ's Blog and Grill. Hey, everybody, and welcome to AQ's Blog and Grill. We're really excited today to have Jennifer Moss with us. Now, Jennifer is an award-winning author, international speaker. She's a contributor to Harvard Business Review. Um, she's on the UN Global Happiness Council. That's really something. And um, I understand that you're now working with the CBC as a radio columnist, and you've got a new book in the works. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alan. I'm excited to be here. Great. Thank you. Now, the specialty, Jennifer, is human resources, but I think mostly, if you've not, correct me if I'm wrong here, you've been specializing in happiness, stress, workplace health, uh, balance, if you will. So am, am I right there? What is it that uh, you're currently up to? Well, you know, I'd say that the term happiness is so nebulous and it's been a hard time to get people educated around why it's really important. Sure. But, um, but what I think is really um, critical and what people do seem to understand is that unhappiness uh, really does contribute to a lot of negative consequences in our lives. And so right. it isn't that happiness is supposed to be uh, defined as being you know, Pollyanna or that we are you know, always happy or that we have to fake it till we make it. The, the idea of happiness is really being able to bounce back and deal with resiliency and mm-hmm. um, be able to um, you know, cope with life and then also be present in the moments that give us joy. So when you start to translate that into, you know, workplace and performance in workplace, I mean, there's so much really great research that shows that if we can reduce the amount of unhappiness and stress and be more resilient, be more optimistic and hopeful, you know, have more self-efficacy, all of these things that contribute to our well-being, we tend to just be healthier and then higher performing in general in work and life. So a lot of what I do is try to get people thinking about that and, right. um, and changing sort of their perceptions of what happiness means to them. Great. Now, one of the things about happiness in the workplace, which will increase productivity, which is important, um, is is it all up to us, the teammates or the employees, or does leadership have some sort of responsibility here? Well, I love that you asked that question. A big focus of my research lately and a lot of the, um, the work that I've been doing for HBR and the book itself, Rethinking Burnout, which will be you know, launched at the end of this year. It's focused on the idea that we've been uh, really sort of manipulating the word burnout as this idea of um, of it being a problem that we have to solve, that it's about self-care. You know, if we do more yoga or if we work out more or if we breathe, you know, more frequently during the day or if we just say no to our boss more, you know, then we will be able to, um, you know, just figure out how to manage burnout. 
And so much of what I'm trying to say is that we're giving these tools to cope with burnout, but the responsibility and accountability really lies with us in leadership to be able to you know, understand uh, when we're increasing the workload, when we're asking too much of our employees um, in their off work hours, when we are um, creating dynamics in the workplace that are really unhealthy. So, um, so again, it's that thing that makes us unhappy um, that we need to tackle. Um, but as leaders, it is our responsibility. And, and because burnout now is really identified as a workplace issue, it becomes mm -hmm. even more of our responsibility as leaders right. to manage it. Right. Now, one of the quotes um, from your article in, in the Harvard Business Review is, leaders could save themselves a huge amount of employee stress and subsequent burnout if they were just better at asking people what they need. And you use a couple of good examples. I think the, uh, the music program uh, at the university is, is one. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, well, so often, you know, I think leaders and I've been, you know, I can say I've I've been um, responsible for this, you know, type of activity myself, you know, in leadership. I'm definitely not saying that, you know, I'm perfect um, in this role, but we tend to think with good intentions and then we really do want to make our employees happy, but we make choices that are not really rooted in the sort of the golden rule 2.0. And when I talk about golden rule 2.0, it's this idea of, you know, not doing un unto others as you would have done unto you. It's about doing uh, unto others as they would have done unto themselves. And the only way that you can really get to that is by intense listening, asking questions, and figuring out what really matters. And so often the issues for people are not, you know, give me a whole bunch of Peloton bikes or put a rooftop pool or, you know, they're not these big grand sweeping things. They're the coffee maker never works in the lunchroom or uh, an example in, in a hospital that we saw where um, nurses and doctors kept having to run down to the other um, part of the hospital to print out patient information because the printer was broken. And the amount of inefficiency and frustrations that causes, they're like little pebbles in our shoes all the time that grate on us. Right. And if we really just ask people, you know, what are the problems that you wanna have solved? It's often just a hundred dollars, you know, better coffee, a fixed printer. Um, these are the things that actually, uh, you know, over time really great at us, but if they're fixed, it really leads to healthy and good hygiene in any sort of organizational culture. Right. So the World Health Organization maybe holds a little bit of responsibility here, uh, or years ago, they, they kind of classed uh, burnout as a, as a disease or an ailment or an infliction. And, and maybe that wasn't the right thing to do because people misunderstood what burnout is or what the effects are. Right? Well, you know, it's been this ongoing battle researchers, especially, you know, the ones that that are well regarded, like Dr. Christina Maslach, who created the Maslach Burnout Inventory. What she's been saying for years is when you know, the WHO announced that it was included in the classification of diseases. They did report that it isn't actually a medical condition, but that it is specifically a workplace issue. So on one hand, you know, they helped in identifying that burnout is not a life 
issue. It's not, you know, making sure that you are doing more yoga at home so that you can be better, you know, and healthier, more productive at work. It is saying that it is a workplace issue, but where they got it wrong is once again, it is um, classified as something that you know, we need to handle as individuals. And so there's benefits to, to this announcement that they did last year, May in 2019. It will help create a lot of policy and we have seen more policies start to build. Uh, there's a framework that's becoming, um, you know, available for organizations to follow, which is really good. Um, but I think we're still in very new stages about how to address some of these really big stressors um, in the workplace and how to make it more, you know, enjoyable and less stressful. <laughs> so what's in it for the organizations? What's in it for leadership? Is there a pronounced difference once you make your environment or your ecosystem or your workplace happier? Uh, is, is there some sort of payoff for the organization or the leadership? You know, absolutely. There's, there's lots of really great research. And even in our UN Global Happiness Policy Report, we were able to identify some causal you know, impacts of happiness as it relates to engagement and productivity, which is a big leap for researchers to use the word causal versus uh, you know, co-related. Um, right. So you know, they're, they're really standing on, on this research, which is great. And this is, I mean, you know, Seligman since, you know, you know, when he first announced that we need to start thinking differently from just focusing on treatment out of the DSM-5 and actually start thinking preventative. And this is, you know, decades ago. So the research is long and vast. And it does say that when we start to um, increase what we call psych cap, which is psychological capital, and those are the traits of hope, efficacy, resilience, and optimism, those four traits are really, um, it, really critical to improving all measures, you know, sales increase, um, you know, sick days are reduced, turnover is reduced, attrition is reduced. You have, you know, all these really great stats and measured outcomes that prove that if we can just raise, you know, the skills uh, of emotional intelligence, that we'll all be better off. Um, so that's good for shareholders. We've seen more adoption of that, but it still is hard for a lot of leadership to wrap their minds around. We still have sort of an old way of thinking about being a leader that we have to be stoic and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of reserved from our teams, um, that we can't have friendships at work. And so once that sort of old way of thinking leaves um, will be able, I think, better to take this new generation into a place of leadership where those traits and happiness are are really, um, you know, well integrated inside of organizational strategies. Right. So do you feel that that culture is going to be even more important as newer generations come into the workplace? Absolutely. I mean, you look at data, even from the last um, report, actually, it was the 2018 report, and it, um, it looked at some really great research um, and a meta study that it looked at millennial workers, and they would take a 37% decrease in pay to be passionate about what they do. So there's this mindset around purpose and meaning in, in what we do. There's a commitment to feeling that what you are doing, you're doing it well and for the good of others. 
Uh, there's a lot more commitment to things like becoming a B Corp organization, being more sustainable, um, focusing on, you know, a climate and environment, reducing your carbon imprint. I know that, yeah, Corey, you do focus on those things. So that's good. You're doing a good job there. But I think younger workers have a more, um, they, they're just more committed. And they also are intrinsically motivated by that. You know, they're not as motivated for there to be some sort of return to shareholders as there is for there to be, you know, a return on just uh, putting goodness out into the, the world okay. and their community. And so that will shape shift, I think, a lot of organizations. Um, but again, it it's an evolving thing. And we also have to make sure that we as leaders support that instead of trying to to kind of tamp that down because right. if we do then we'll just recreate versions of ourselves and uh and that won't necessarily create really you know really profitable as well as sustainable and positive impactful companies that could shape the future of work right yeah so this future of work that you've just brought up jennifer it seems to me that business models are going to have to shift, as you say, shape shift, so that it's easier, it's more adaptable, if you will, for leaders to say, yeah, we should do that. And let's look at the status quo as being actually a hindrance. Mm -hmm. and, and let's get it out of the way. It's roadkill now. Let's get off the road because we need to move faster towards that. Is that correct? Am I right? Yeah, I think you're you're right. And, and that can be challenging. I mean, mm -hmm. we you see it more in, um, you know, younger companies, uh, startups where there's more, um, you know, agility, but just even in the startup ecosystem, there's always a need to pro productize. And so, you know, sometimes things don't need to be productized in that they don't need to become actual things or they don't need to become software. You know, sometimes we need to think about, you know, what are we building for the future? And if we have this sort of mindset that it is, um, it is both doing well and doing good, then it doesn't necessarily have to be this sort of very tunnel vision focus that we have on what makes a company successful. Right. And so it's changing again, I just did a, an interview uh, or a column, sorry, for CBC on making GDP obsolete and focusing more on happiness measures as being part of what we would include in the budget, because then we can start to measure, you know, the impact, for example, of clean drinking water on our happiness and also on, you know, our fiscal health. So if we can start to think about in the way that we run a company or the way that we create patents or the way that we think about a new product, then I think it changes the, the opportunity um, it really creates more opportunity, but then it also makes what we're building very exciting. And that passion can be what drives people to really um, to sell it and to be excited about it and to, to make it a viable, marketable thing. Right. So one of the things you've mentioned in a recent uh, HBR article was that leaders shouldn't think about introducing this kind of change to how things are done or how things are felt in their organization silo by silo mm -hmm. that, that's sort of a, a great way to screw it up is that right yeah absolutely i mean we we see this sort of disconnection i mean for example when you think about burnout and communication for example 
you know, so many people are feeling overloaded by, by communication, too many emails coming out from too many different teams and no one knows who's talking to who, but the employees at the center of all of that, you know, sort of overloading. And um, that's a perfect example of where if you had communication across all channels, you would also be able to streamline it better. So if there's uh, more connectivity, but in a way that that makes sense. I mean, even just, you know, when you, you look at the way that an agency would run its businesses, you have someone that is the gatekeeper so that not everyone feels a bit, you know, overwhelmed. Right. You have to think about that in leadership is understanding that there are ways that we are burning our employees out and by siloing our communication or siloing our communication amongst each other, we're losing ideation, we're losing innovation, we're missing out on opportunities to talk to someone that's in marketing, even though we're building something in, in technology. There's just such a, a great opportunity for us to collaborate and then also not to overwhelm. So there's these, this two-pronged benefit to removing those barriers. Um, but I should add that so um, many of the, the big, you know, most successful, most innovative companies are understanding that clustered teams and groups of 20, but broken down into six are actually the healthiest way to run a company. Yep. But then there's mechanisms that allow it to flow up and, you know, flow down, up and middle out. Yeah. So there is that, there is that flow. Isn't it amazing that innovation ever happens? Um, <laughs> because we throw so many darts and arrows and, you know, landmines in front of different thinking that it's got to change. It does. And, you know, innovation, another one of my favorite, you know, buzzwords or, or nebulous terms that everyone says, you know, I want to innovate. And um, it's really hard thing to do. And when you actually look at the, the neuroscience of innovation, if you are stressed, you completely cut off access to that part of your brain the fight or flight place where stress you know happens inside of our bodies inside of our brains uh, that is the part where we ideate that's the part where we create and innovate and um and when people are stressed that just can't happen so it's another example of why we need to create you know environments where we are focused on well-being because we can't be competitive if, if we don't right this, I, I think you're really getting into some fabulous places in the, in the neuroscience uh, and plasticity. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is, we need people like you, Jennifer Moss, to, to help us understand Thank that you. we can do this. It's actually pretty native uh, if we used our brain in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, it's grandma's rules. The, the thing is, is we've, we've sort of, um, as humans, we tend to think that the, the more rigorous the solution or the more complex the solution, the more successful it will be. And we don't trust that there's, uh, you know, that we have existed and evolved and that we are pretty bright. Um, you know, most of us um, are um, pretty... Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> <laughs> he was okay. included in this in this reference, Alan. Okay. Yeah, we we are capable. And the thing is, is when we think about psychological fitness, it's really just a, a habit that we're forming and taking our habits and turning them into uh, into traits versus states. So 
you know, I could be in a state of being grateful. I can say I'm thankful, you know, in Thanksgiving. But if I practice gratitude regularly and say thank you, say to my team every Friday, or I, you know, thank my spouse or my children and make a point of that or sit around at dinner time and, and talk about what made us smile today, that turns those states of gratitude into being um, a person that is grateful, a, a, a trait that is embedded in our neural wiring. And so when we are confronted with a situation where we can choose gratitude, we subconsciously choose it. But that takes a long time. We have this myth of the 21 day you know, habit that you can build or break. It's actually really easy to break a habit, but it can take up to a year or longer to really ingrain the neural wiring um, that is required to turn states into traits. So, you know, people have to understand that it's not something that they just do um, once uh, around the Thanksgiving, you know, table every year. It's about practicing it all the time. And you know, it doesn't need to be as cumbersome as people think. Like now I have to write a gratitude journal for a half an hour before I go to bed every night. No, it could be just weekly, three things that made you happy that week. And gratitude is just one example. You know, we talk about hope, make your bed in the morning that can build cognitive hope. It's, you know, it's just, it's such simple tools. Um, again, those grandma's rules or grandpa's rules, however way you want to define it, but they're easy. It's just intentional and it takes time and it takes a commitment to do it um, for good for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah it's behavior. Absolutely. You know, we can all think all these, these things, but if we don't actually put them into practice, then it's wasted. It's taking up space and we should, we should really make it happen on a daily basis on a, every time we, we wake up, as you say, make yeah. our beds and get ready to go. You want to lose weight, you know, or you want to, you have a fitness goal. I mean, you don't go to the gym once and then, you know, you're running a marathon. pounds. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's a regular effort, you know, to maintain those endorphins and to stay fit. And I mean, it's, it's a 10,000 hour commitment before you have mastery. Right. And uh, if you believe in Gladwell's sort of definition of mastery, it takes a lot of time. So I think that's just what people have to understand is it is simple, but it's um, the benefits are complex and it takes time. Right. So Jennifer, how are people going to get more of Jennifer Moss? Or we're going to listen to you on CBC. When does that happen? Well, every second week I am on um, CBC as their happiness expert, their columnist, which is right. great. I, I love it. It's so much fun. We come up with new ideas to tackle all the time. Um, and then I often do syndicated stuff, which happens every so often. Like this last Wednesday, I was, you know, in 26 different local stations. So across the country. So that's really fun. Um, right. And then the book uh, obviously is coming out at the end of, uh, at the end of the year, but there's a few things that I'm working on. I'm um, doing the, the work with HBR still and their digital, you know, their digital blogging. I'm constantly doing work for them. And, um, and then I'm also going to be writing a big idea, which is very exciting. And HBR puts six out a year, um, you know, for example, you, know, you have people like, you know, Malala writing these big ideas or, um, you know, or the Melinda Gates just wrote one. So it's very exciting for me to be able to sort of become that expert on burnout and talk uh, to the rest of the world about maybe changing the way that 
their thinking, maybe create a paradigm shift. Right. Um, and so HBR has been really excited about the book and supporting the promotion of that. So, yeah. And the current book is uh, been out for two years. Yeah, 2016. So oh, wow. four years now. Yeah. yeah. Unlocking happiness at work. How a data-driven happiness strategy mm, uh, fuels purpose, passion, and performance. And I read it when it came out. And I learned a lot, so I think we should all look it up on uh, on Amazon. And uh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a it's an interesting um, book that I've I think now four years later too, and just the amount of work and research and opportunity to really dig into it. The the data part part I think is becoming the most critical shift in the future of work our data-driven thinking is so necessary and um and a lot of managers don't have the skills necessarily that to, to actually um create strategies out of data um and there's some discussion about after this book is done that that book will be updated with some new thinking which will be which will be great excellent jennifer moss thank you very much for spending some time with us today I always learn something when we chat. So I'm, I'm hoping our listeners and subscribers feel the same way. I'm sure they do. So Jennifer, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll follow up. We'll follow up on that new book for sure. I look forward to it. Thank okay. you. Everyone. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye for now. Bye. As always, thanks for joining us this week on AQ's Blog and Grill. Make sure to visit our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter or hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode so that you never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found value in today's episode or in any of our previous episodes, we'd love if you'd take a few seconds to give us a five-star review. Your reviews and five stars ensure that other people who need to hear stories like these have the chance to hear them. Or if you're not into rating, tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth spreads the love too and would definitely help us out. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode of AQ's Blog and Grill. AQ's Blog and Grill.